10, verse 7 tells us that then I said, Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, O God. In the scripture, we find the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 5, verse 39 tells us, Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Luke 24, verse 44. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spoke unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled. Next verse, Tim, 45 which are written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the psalm concerning me. From Genesis to Revelation, we find his presence, we find his purpose, we find his power, we find his attributes. You study the word of God in order to learn about the Lord Jesus Christ. In the volume of the book, it is written of me. This is where we go to know who God is, to know his character, to know his attributes, to know him. This morning, I want us to look at the book of Judges. So turn with me to Judges. In the book of Judges, Christ is the purifier. He is the purifier. Remember, in Genesis, he was creator in Exodus, he was deliverer, and Leviticus, instructor. Well, in Judges, he is the purifier. Now, it's interesting, the word there for judges, the Hebrew word there for judges, it's, it's sofatim. And sofatim has a much greater meaning than the word in our English language for judge. When we think of a judge, we think of someone who sits on a raised dais and, and, and says guilty, guilty, innocent, innocent, uh, that pronounces judgment. Well, in the Hebrew, it's a much different word than that. That's a part of it, but it's a far cry from being descriptive of what the word, the Hebrew word judges really is. It's someone who sets things right. It's someone who delivers. It's someone who corrects. It's not just someone who judges something, but it's someone who sets things right and then rules. And as we go through the book of Judges and we look at the 13 different judges that God called out there, there are 13 judges uh, in the book of Judges, and then there are four in the book of 1 Samuel. So there are 17 judges that God used to whip Israel into shape, and believe me, they needed whipping into shape. And so it, it was more than just somebody that sits around and goes, okay, I, my sentences or my determination, my judgment is, it was someone who set things right and things needed to be set right. Sharp contrast, extremely sharp contrast between Judges and Joshua. Sharp contrast between the two. Remember, in Joshua, 
it ended with that generation declaring in Joshua 24, 24, the Lord, I, the Lord our God will we serve and His voice will we obey. That's how the book of Joshua ends. The children of Israel saying, Lord, you're our God. We have seen your handiwork. We have seen you at work in our lives. We've seen your power. We've seen your might. We recognize you as being the true and living God, and we will obey. The book of Judges ends chapter 21, verse 25 of Judges that every man did that which was right in their own eyes. Do you realize the danger of that? Do you realize the chaos? Do you realize the wickedness that reigns when man does that which is right in his own eyes? The book of Judges, I think it does two things. One, it displays man's need for a righteous king to rule over them. But the book of Judges also shows, and we're going to be pointing this out, the seven cycles that the human being goes through in surrendering themselves to God. Seven cycles. Or five. Seven cycles through the book of Judges, man, the children of Israel did this. Five, diff five different things, seven times, five different things the children of Israel do. And I'm telling you, that's exactly what man does today. There's sin, then there's servitude, then there's supplication, then there's salvation, then there is silence. If you don't like S's, how about R's? There's rebellion, retribution, repentance, restoration, rest, repeat. Seven times in the book of Judges, that's what happens. God says, thou shalt have no other gods before me, and guess what they do? They have plenty of gods before him. And wickedness reigns because every man did that which was right in their own eyes. So there would be rebelling, rebellion against God's word. Then God would allow those nations that they fail to run out to take control of them. God's Word says that God sold them into slavery each time. There was rebellion, then there would be retribution, God using those nations. Then there would be repentance, they would cry out. God would supply a judge that would come in and make things right. There would be restoration, there would be rest. And what happens after rest, after a little while? Rebellion again. Seven different times that happens in the book of Judges. And I'm telling you, man hasn't really changed a whole lot since then. If we were honest with ourselves, we go through that same five things often. Am I wrong? Am I wrong? Robin's the only one shaking her head, yes. I mean, no, you're not wrong. So I guess she, Robin and I are the only ones that get, have that, that issue. Right, Keith? What we're going to see that the, nation, uh, that the nation of Israel during the time of Judges, what they went through is rebelling against God's Word, 
then there were consequences for disobeying God's word. And then they would be so sorry we disobeyed God's word. God would come along and he would make things right. He would provide that savior, that deliverer. Things would be okay for a while. And then they'd slip right back into it. So Joshua ends with, Lord, we're going to obey you. Judges ends with every man doing that which was right in their own eyes. The influence of those nations, those people that inhabited the land of the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, the land of Israel, the, in, the inhabitants, their influence on the nation of Israel was so overwhelming that these nations and, and their immorality and their lasciviousness, and uh, it, it was incredibly appealing to the children of Israel, but it just drew them in to worshiping false gods. Satan's influence permeated that land, and the children of Israel said, God or who? What's going on over here? Hey, you know what the bottom line is? Sex sales. Sex sales. Satan, he's been using that ever since the beginning. And the children of Israel saw what was going on and going, hey, do we want Baal? Do we want Moloch? Do we want... Who, who, look what their God allows them to do. Or do we want our God, thou shalt not commit adultery. Uh, uh, it's, and guess which one they continue to do. The, the draw was so was so dramatic. And the first chapter, turn with me to the first chapter in Judges, Judges 1. It really spells out what the problem was. What the problem was. God told them, when they entered in the land, you drive out those nations. God knew the influence that the Canaanites and the Hittites and all the other Vites was going to have on the children of Israel. And he said, drive them out. But look what happens. Look at Judges 1.20. And they gave Hebron unto Caleb, as Moses said, and he expelled thence the three sons of Anak. Look at verse 21. And the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites, that inhabited Jerusalem, but the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem unto this day. Verse 22, In the house of Joseph they also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. But look at verse 29. But neither did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites that dwell in Gezer, but the Canaanites dwell in Gezer among them. Verse 30, Neither did Zebulon drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, nor the inhabitants of Nehalo, but the Canaanites dwelt among them and became tributaries. 31, neither did Asher. It just goes on and on. Each one of the tribes failed to do what God told them to do that was in their best interest. Now, I know I've made this point several times, but I want us to understand clearly why it was absolutely necessary that when they went into the land, there was to be a cleansing. I believe 
strongly, I believe firmly, I believe what God's Word tells us. Just in Genesis 6 when it says that the sons of God came into the daughters of men and that they were evil continually, that the offspring of those sons of God, which were fallen angels, come into the daughters of men having offspring that were giants. That's where the legends and the giants and all that's what It's, what, it's through that, that sin is where they came from. But there was giants in the land in those days and also after that. What is, and also after that. What does that mean? What's that pointing to? It's pointing to the land. Once Satan understood, once he knew where the seed of the woman was going to come from, there was a second eruption. There was a second attack, if you will. And the inhabitants of the promised land were demonic. There were giants. Where did those giants come from? It came from the same place that in Genesis 6 they came from. A second eruption of the sons of God going into the daughters of men. And they were wicked. They were wicked. And our great and merciful and loving God understood where their power came from. He understood the magnitude of the worship that was going on carried out by them and who they were literally worshiping. Of course he was jealous of that. He knew that there is no God in a tree. He knew there's no God in a rock. But I'm going to tell you something. There was the God of this world behind their worship, and he was jealous. My people will not worship those things that are promoted by Satan himself. There was a warfare that was going on. Matter of fact, there's a verse I'm going to share with you that I meant to share with you last week. It has very little to do with what we're looking at today. But then it kind of sorted us. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 29, 29. Just keep in mind as we go through the book of Judges, the spiritual warfare that's taking place. The attacks that come against the children of Israel. The battle that rages between God and Satan himself. And folks, if you don't think there's a spiritual warfare, then you're blind to what's really going on in the world, even today. There's a spiritual warfare going on today. Satan is real, and he is really active. But look at Deuteronomy 29, 29. Because I think a lot of these things that we're talking about falls within this verse. The secret things are the hidden realities what that says the hidden realities belong unto the Lord our God but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law I'm here to tell you there is so much more to the universes there is so much more to 
God's realm, we are so limited as mankind in our universe and what we know and the realities that we experience and understand. We have no idea of the hidden realities. That's why nothing is impossible with God. There are hidden realities. There are things that are going on out there. There are things that are, that are taking place right now, I think, in the spiritual warfare, that if we could actually see, if we could actually understand, if we could realize, it would probably cause us to stay in our houses with the doors locked. Because there's so much more to what's out there and what's going on. I know a lot of people scoff, a lot of people laugh, a lot of people snicker at the, when we talk about the sons of God, fallen angels coming to the daughters of men, and all the things, all the ramifications of that sort of shake their heads and go, you're a loony. Well, that may be true too, but I think in this, that I'm right on with the truth of what's going on out there when it comes to spiritual warfare. And it's because of God's grace, His mercy, that I think we enjoy His protection based on all that's going on. So chapter 1 of Judges. We, we have the problem that Israel didn't do what God told them to do. Wipe them out. Destroy them. Run them out, because I'm going to give you this land. This is your land, and I will be with you. Chapter 2 is a summary of the fact that they didn't do that, and God says, all right, I'm going to leave them here. They're going to be a thorn in your flesh. They're, they're going to cause you difficulty. I'm going to use them to prove you. And boy, do they. Look at chapter 2. Chapter 1 ends with the failure of Dan to run the inhabitants of the land out. Chapter 2. And the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgad to Boshim and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt and have brought you into the land which I swear unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. You shall throw down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Wherefore, I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare unto you. And it came to pass when the angel of the Lord spoke these words unto all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voice and they wept. And they called the name of the place Boshim, which means weepers. And they sacrificed there unto the Lord. The next part of that chapter talks about the fact that the godly generation, those that knew Joshua and saw the hand of God, they died out. So the next generation they didn't serve God. They didn't know God. They didn't care about the things of God. Joshua is dead, and the generation that he led, that he brought into the promised land, they died. 
And the next generation didn't know. And I find that extremely sad. Don't you? Why? Why didn't they know? Is it because mom and dad did not teach them God's Word? Is it because they failed to pass on those truths to their children? In Deuteronomy 6, the, the Lord instructed Israel, I want the Word of God to be so important to you. I want you, if you're sitting down and you're rising up, and you're, no matter what you're doing, Genesis chapter 6, there it is. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and thou shalt talk of them when you sit in thy house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. The Word of God is to be important to you. Why? So your kids know what I've done and who I am. It's a sad commentary because they didn't know. They didn't know. So either their previous generation did not teach them and folks, there's a lesson there for us. There's a lesson there for us. But I'm telling you, you either teach your kids to love God, or the world will teach them not to. You either teach your children and your grandchildren about the things of God, or the world will teach them to deny Him. And that's a fact. These, never mind. These parents that say, well, I'm just going to let my child make a decision. Heaven help you. Because I guarantee you the world's not saying that. The world's not sitting back going, well, let's see what kind of decision they're going to make. I can tell you this, the world is pressing. The world is pressing. And we better be pressing back even harder, so much harder. Amen? Amen. So they, either they didn't teach the kids, the children, or the draw from those false gods were so strong that they literally couldn't help themselves. You ever wondered? You ever noticed? Maybe I'm talking from my own, my own life. But have you ever noticed that sin is easy? Sin is easy. Obedience is what's difficult. It kind of shows you how comfortable we are with sin and how foreign righteousness is to us and how much we need God. Oh, we need Him to be the one to change our heart, to change our lives, to make us new creations. Why? We need the indwelling Holy Spirit to guide and direct in our lives because the bottom line is sin's easy. So the next generation knew nothing of God. Look at Judges 2, starting with verse 10. And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers, and there arose another generation after them which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. It's because he didn't tell them. 
And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods and the gods of the people that were round about them. And they bowed themselves unto them and provoked the Lord to anger. I don't blame him for being mad. He's righteous, holy God. He, he's the one that delivered them. And here is Satan offering them such evil, such perverted things to follow after. And boy, they went along. They went along with it. Verse 13, And they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he delivered them into the hands of spoilers that spoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies round about, so that they could not any longer stand before their enemies. And whithersoever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn unto them, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges seven times. And that's, I think this is important. Seven times the Lord in the book of Judges raises up a deliverer. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. And yet they would not hearken unto their judges, but they went a whoring after other gods and bowed themselves unto them. And they turned quickly out of the way which their fathers walked in, obeying the commandments of the Lord, but they did not so. Verse 19 talks about the fact that God, the Lord raised up judges. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they returned and corrupted themselves again. Seven times that cycle took place. Seven times God did what? He forgave. He forgave. He delivered. He saved. Look at Matthew chapter 18. I wonder, I've often wondered about this verse. And as I was studying this, I wonder if this verse fits. Look at Matthew 18, verse 21. Then came Peter to him, talking about the Lord Jesus, and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Till seven times? Till seven times? Well, Lord, that's how many times you, and the Lord, what does the Lord say? Jesus said unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven, which was not a number in the Hebrew numbering system. There, there was no such number. It meant infinity. It, it, was, it was a number so far-fetched. But I wonder if that goes back to Judges because God in Judges in dealing with Israel seven different times He forgave. Is that what Peter had in mind when he said seven times? It kind of shows us what God would have done in Judges. If it had been 70 times that that cycle took place, He'd have done the same thing. 
And then God raises up these judges. Thirteen of them in the book of Judges. Deborah and Barak and Gideon and Samson. All of these people are there in the book. But I want us to look at Judges 6 real quick. Because I, I, we only have time for one of these examples of these judges. And I think this example in Judges chapter 6 really epitomizes all the rest in what God was doing with Israel. In Genesis chapter 6, it's the study of Gideon. And you hear, you've all heard of Gideon, where Gideon's not sure, Lord, are you the one that's calling me to be this judge, to do this? If, if you are, I'm going to lay out this fleece, and in the morning dew, just let the fleece have water and the ground dry. And sure enough, that happened. Lord, I'm still not sure. Could you have all the ground wet but the fleece dry? I wonder why God just doesn't zap us all anyway. <laughs> Thinking, I'm so tired of them. But you know what God's Word says? It says that His mercies are renewed every morning. Wow. What a great God we serve. What a loving God we serve. But anyway, chapter 6 of Judges. Find no surprise here. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. By the way, the period of Judges, it's almost 400 years. These seven cycles take place over a 400-year uh, a period. I think 483 to be exact, but almost 400 years. This seven cycle takes place. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel, and because of Midian, the Midianites, the children of Israel, made them the dens which are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. They were in hiding. Wait a minute, this is the promised land. You've seen God deliver this land unto you. What in the world are you doing hiding in dens and caves Whose children are you anyway? And so it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites, Midianites came and the Amalekites and the children of the east, even they came up against them. And they encamped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth till thou come unto Gaza and left no sustenance for the Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor donkeys. In other words, they wiped them out. Where is God's promise of prosperity? Well, that promise of prosperity was based on obedience. Where's God's promise of protection? Well, that promise of protection was based on obedience. For they came up with cattle, they came up with their cattle in their tents, and they came as grasshoppers for multitude. For both they and their camels were without number, and they entered into the land to destroy it. That's a whole sermon there if we start talking about comparison, what God had promised and God had blessed. But those blessings were taken away to Israel, from Israel. And Israel was greatly impoverished because the Midianites and the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. Here we go. There's the rebellion. Right? After rebellion... Next comes retribution, and there, there's the retribution. 
They're crying out to the Lord. There's the repentance. Well, God's about to do that rescuing. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel and said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you forth out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all that oppressed you and drove them out from before you and gave you their land. And I said unto you, I am the Lord your God. Fear not the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. And there came an angel of the Lord and said under oak, which was in Ophrah, that pertained unto Joash, the uh, Abazarite, and the son of Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. Now I wish we had more time to talk about that. That, that amazes me. Here was Gideon hiding from the Midianites. He was threshing what little wheat and grain that they had in hiding so that the Midianites would not know it. And what does God come along and call him? You mighty man of valor. I read that and I think, God, you saw him for who he actually could be with your help with your strength. See, God sees us for what He can make us. He's begun His work in it. He's going to perform it. He's conforming us to the image of His Son. See, God calls Him a mighty man of valor because God knows the beginning from the end. He knows what's about to happen. Even though Gideon might not know it, he's hiding, but God's seeing him for what he truly is. Thou mighty man of valor. And Gideon said unto him, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles which our fathers told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Gideon? But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites? Why? Why? Gideon, you guys are doing evil in the sight of the Lord. There are consequences to sin. There are consequences to disobedience. Gideon, how dare you ask God such a question? See, it's just like man to want to blame God. Well, Lord, why? Why is this happening to me? And I'm not saying that everything that happens to us is because of sin. I'm not saying that at all. But in this case, that's exactly why this was happening. But Gideon was so spiritually blinded, he didn't understand that. God's about to show him that it's the consequences of sin and rebellion. And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? And Gideon says, Oh, my Lord. Wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I'm the least of my father's house. See, that makes no difference to God. That makes no difference to God. If he can use a shepherd boy and make him a king, if 
God can take any individual that says, here I am, Lord, send me. Here I am, Lord, use me. God doesn't call the qualified. How's that saying go? God qualifies the called. That's what we need to realize. Lord, how do I know that I'm really talking with you? And this is where he says, okay, let's lay out this fleece. If it's really you, I, I want the, the, I'm going to lay out this fleece of this sheep, and in the morning, I want the dew to be in that fleece, and I can wring the water out of that fleece, but all the other ground's going to be dry. God said, the angel of the Lord said, okay. And sure enough, it was. But Gideon said, but Lord, can, can you do the opposite? The Lord said, okay, sure, I can do that. And he did that. And that's when Gideon realized who he was. And he believed. He trusted. Trusted God. Verse, verse 22. And when Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord, Gideon said, alas, O Lord God, for because I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face, and the Lord said unto him, Peace be unto thee, fear not, thou shalt not die. Then Gideon built an altar there unto the Lord and called it Jehovah Shalom, the Lord my peace. That's where we get the name Jehovah Shalom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jehovah Shalom. The Lord instructs him to take the second, take three bullocks, and out of the second bullock, the second ox, he is to take it and he is to slay it, and he is to make an offering unto the Lord. Why not the first? Why not the third? What do you think the second ox is a type of? Of the Lord Jesus Christ. It, God, God's word leaves no question it guides us it directs us it proves itself to be accurate the problem with man is he just doesn't study it man does not get into the word like he should take thy father's bullock even the second bullock bullock of seven years old and throw down the altar of Baal that thy father hath cut down sure enough Gideon did that he obeyed God and you know what the men of Israel did after? I mean, it's his own father. His own father had an altar to Baal. And the first one that God told him to tear down belonged to his father. And when he tore that idol, that altar to Baal down, the children of Israel came and said, well, it's about time. Man, am I glad that, that we got that straightened out. Is that what happened? Not hardly. Who did this? Gideon. Gideon. Kill him. Let's kill him. Look at 6. Verse 30. Well, verse 29. And they said one to another, Who hath done this thing? And when they inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, he's done this thing. Then the men of the city, see, they were mad because, they were mad because this, 
this altar had been, had been torn down. And Joash said unto them, and then the men, bring out thy son that he may die, because he hath cast down the altar of Baal, and because he hath cut down the grove that was by it. And Joash said unto all that stood against him, Will you plead for Baal? Will he save him? He that will plead for him, let him be put to death while it is yet morning. If he be a god, let him plead for himself, because one hath cast down his altar. In other words, if Baal's ticked, let Baal be the one to kill him. But there's silence. Verse 34 says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, and there was a whole bunch of folks that gathered unto him. And then it's after this that he laid down. The, the Lord said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use you to deliver Israel. And that's when he said, okay, let's, let's do the fleece thing. Let's put the fleece out to make sure. Verse 40, And God did so that night, for it was dry upon the fleece only, and there was dew on all the ground. And Gideon knew that this was of God. The rest of the story talks about the fact that that. Gideon had his whole army that came to his call. They were ready to deliver Israel. They came to show they were mighty. They were trusting God. And God said, there's too many of you. Well, an army this size, why well, they're going to pat each other on the back and they're going to give the glory to one another and say, look what we did. The Lord said, 300. And... I think there was like 22,000 that showed up. Verse 6, the Lord says, I I want you to pick some, and here's the way you're going to pick them. You're going to take these men to the creek, to the river, and they're going to drink, and those that get down on their hands and knees and they lap water like a dog uh, I don't want them I don't want them but those that cup their hands and they drink those are the ones that I want I, I think it's because those that get down on their hands and knees are those that were used to bowing down and worshiping Baal they knew how to get take the prone position they were used to doing that the Lord said I don't want them fighting for me then we know how Gideon, with just the 300, instead of the 22,000, routed the Midianites and won the day. Again, rebellion and then retribution and then repentance. The cycle happened over and over and over again. God blessed Midian, or God blessed Gideon, and destroyed the Midianites. Man fails, man falters, man cries out, God forgives, repeat. See, the bottom line is man cannot maintain that lofty status on his own merits, on his own ability. It has to be God. That's what each of the dispensations prove, whether it's the dispensation of innocence, even the dispensation of grace. 
It has to be God's unmerited favor. It has to be what we do not deserve. It has to be God. It can't be man because man fails. God is the one that takes the initiative to save because of His great love that He has for us. Folks, that's the God I want to serve. I don't want to serve a God that throws out all sorts of beautiful and flashy and, and wicked things and say, bow down to me and all these things can be yours. That's, that, that's what the world goes after. I want the God that says, I love you. And I'm going to go to such extreme measures in order to bring you to myself. I'm going to be the one that's going to pay the debt that you owe. I'm going to be the one that hangs on a cross. I, the wages of sin is death. Okay, I love you so much. I am going to pay that debt you owed. See, Satan's the kind that's going to throw out tempting, flashy, worldly, and man just scurries after those things. But the true God of heaven, He offers eternal life. He offers true life. People say, well, if God would only... Only what? Only what? You tell me one thing that God could do that He hasn't already done. Really? If God would only name me one thing that He, he hasn't already done. One thing the Scriptures teach us is regardless of what God does, man's going to revert back. except for the Lord Jesus. And us being complete in Him. See, that was when Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father by me. That was more than just, yeah, it's for salvation. But you study the history of man, He is the only way. Man's way it's going to be stumble and fall and sin and make mistakes. Oh, it tells us that we have a loving God who takes us the moment we believe and places us in Christ, seals us into the day of redemption, sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. It has nothing to do with my promise to God. God, you save me and I will. That, that, that discussion never happened, by the way. Never happened. It was all one way. And the only way it could have happened. It was from God to man. Via the Lord Jesus Christ. Aren't you thankful for that this morning? I know I am. Because Calvary covers it all. I've studied the book of Judges and I go, man, what sinners, what idiots. 
Then I pick up the newspaper. I go, what idiots? What sinners? Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we come recognizing that you and you alone are our hope. Father, we come recognizing that we failed, that there are none righteous, no, not one. There's none that doeth good. Father, we come before you and we recognize man's natural condition as being lost, being undone, without hope. But you offer that eternal life through Christ Jesus. Father, this morning, how thankful we are that you looked beyond our faults and you saw our need. You met that need. Through Christ Jesus, your only begotten Son. And we praise your name for that. Father, I pray this morning, if there's anyone here that does not know you as Savior, that in the quietness of this moment, Father, they will believe that you died for them, that you were buried and that you rose again. Father, they'll take that good news as a personal invitation to them to become a new creation in Christ by believing. Father, it's not via an altar call. Father, we don't have an altar. We don't need an altar. We come to Christ believing. We don't get up and walk down an aisle. We don't do anything that would dull, that would dim what the Lord Jesus Christ has done on our behalf based on His faithfulness, we believe in Him. Father, we thank You for that salvation. All glory, all praise, all adoration, all worship goes to You, God. You and You alone. The source of salvation. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.